0: Now, I'd imagine you've seen this probably hundreds of times. You're watching a football game, and, and you got the players, and they're all in a huddle. A coach calls the play, sends it in with the running back, and he goes running in there, tells the quarterback, and then the quarterback then tells the team what the play is. Or even kind of a modern-day phenomenon is we've got folks that are getting the signal from the coaches on the sideline, and all the players are looking. They know what the signal is or what the little picture means and what they're supposed to do. And they get to the line. And, you know, every play is designed to be a touchdown, right? However, there are 11 other people on the other side of the ball that are determined to blow up whatever play was called, right? It's not—they're not going to make it easy. In fact, they're going to cause any impediment and put any obstruction to try to get that play not to function. Now, in order for the play to be a success, there's a couple things. You have to have complete, utter clarity as to what the play is, right? And you have to have a willingness and a desire to execute the play. That's how it works. Now, in Texas, we know that there is a high degree of alignment between football and our faith, right? We know that for certain, right? We think in terms of football. And uh, very interesting. Did you know that God has called a play that he wants us to run? And um, anybody happen to know what that play might be? Oh, man. This is... No one, are you serious? No one here has any clue what the play is. Well, I want you to find your playbooks. I guess we're going to start at the beginning. Find your playbooks. I want you to go to the play that God has called, Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 through 20. Uh, Some of you have heard of this, referred to as the great commission, not the great omission. So we're, listen, we're going to make sure we know the play. What is it that God has called us to do? And as we've been making our way to the book of 2 Timothy, you notice when you get to chapter 2 that there is this strong emphasis on disciple-making, discipleship. If you want to know its origins, it all gets started with Jesus. As he's resurrected, he calls the plane and says, listen, this is what I want you to do. I can assure you there will be zero chance of us actually doing it if we are not completely clear what he's called us to do. So what is the play? Well, let's take a look at it. Matthew chapter 28, verse 18 and following. And Jesus came up and spoke to them saying, listen to this. If there was ever a loaded statement, here it is. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Complete, utter, sovereign authority. He says, I'm it. This is what I, the sovereign Lord, want you to do. We should be paying attention at this point. Verse 19, this is what I want you to do. I want you to go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And so what Jesus says is I want you to go and make disciples. Now the word disciple... Uh, it means one that is taught by another. Uh, a, perhaps another way that you could think of the word disciple is like an apprentice. I'm not just going to learn information, but I'm going to learn skills. I'm going to actually embody that which has been passed on to me. And so the main verb in verses 19 through 20 is make disciples. It is the central command. It's not that you're just you're learning something or that you're just believing but that you are trusting, you are growing in your understanding, you're learning what continual obedience looks like. And so he says, therefore, this is what I am commanding you to do. I'm commanding you to make disciples. And he actually it's interesting, in verse 19 and 20, there are three participles. Uh, in the Greek, you only see you, you see three in our English translation, you only see two. But there are three participles that kind of describe the aspects of this process of going and making disciples. Verse is nineteen verse nineteen, it really could be translated as you are going. But your Bible probably says go, but as you are going, it has the idea that you are in motion. You're actually engaging, you're doing something. You're engaged in a process. As you are going, you are to make disciples of all the nations. This is a global vision that Jesus is passing on to his disciples. And he says, I want you to be the second participle, baptizing. The idea of one being immersed, so united with. That's what baptism means, to be identified with. They take like a some cloth and they would dip it into a dye. That cloth would be identified forever with that color. That's what baptism is. It is an identification with baptizing them in the name of. Singular, and yet look at this: in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. If you really want to know who is God, here He is. One name, singular, one in essence, but three distinct persons: Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Although you will not find the word Trinity in the Bible, you see that God is triune in nature, even in Genesis one you see that God is establishing, that is a plurality. Let us make man in our own image. And here we see Father, Son, Holy Spirit, baptizing you. Have them identify fully with who I am. And he says, I want you to do this, verse 20. I want you to teach them to observe all that I commanded you. So often when you hear about the Great Commission, I know that you're familiar with this text. The idea is like, well, all we do is we tell them about Jesus and the gospel and if they believe, we're good. We're done. Great. We're going to heaven. But that's not the Great Commission. That's not what Jesus called us to do. He said, I want you to teach them to observe all, heed, keep, obey everything that I've told you. The idea is I want you to bring them to the fullness of maturity. Maturity in me, I want them mobilized for ministry all that I commanded you. Not just a few things, Everything. And he says, listen to this, verse 20. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Jesus is saying, listen, I know that you won't do this. I'm pretty familiar with the fact that you'll probably get chicken. And you're just like, that nah, I'm not going to do it. You're going to live in a society that says, man, that's politically incorrect to actually talk about Jesus and to actually... Talk about bringing people the fullness of maturity in Christ. So I'm going to go silent because I don't want to be weird. That's one of my highest values. But Jesus said, I want you to go make disciples of all the nations. I want you to teach them. I want you to baptize. And I am going to be with you. I will do this through you. The beauty of Christianity, what makes a person really a Christian, is they've been united with Christ. And literally, his spirit takes up residency in their life. And he says, I am going to empower you and to equip you to do as I've asked. I will provide everything you need. I never, Jesus never asks us to do anything he doesn't empower us to do. He says, I want you to make disciples of all the nations. So let me ask you a question. And I'm going to give you a minute to think about this. How many of you think that Jesus, when he said make disciples of all the nations, the disciples knew completely, 100% clear what they were to do? How many of you think that, well, when Jesus said, go make disciples, the disciples, the apostles are going, well, uh, we're I have a kind of an idea, but I, I'm going to need a lot more information. In fact, I'm going to need like the New Testament to kind of fill it in so I know what to do. And then how many of you believe that like, you know, they were clueless? So where do you land? How many of you think that? When Jesus said, go make disciples of all the nations, the disciples, those apostles, like, they knew 100% what they were to do. Any, any takers? We got, we got one. Okay. And that's the sound guy. He was here at first okay. how many of us. Okay. How many of you think like we had some idea? Okay. And how many of you think like they had no idea? And I see some of you are not thinking. Okay, listen, we want you fully engaged. We want you paying attention. I want to tell you that when Jesus said, go make disciples of all the nations, they knew exactly what he was after. Why? Because this is what Jesus had been doing with them. There was a distinct pattern that Jesus had actually done and engaged his men with, and they in return were going were to go and do it with others. And I want to make sure that you know the play. I want you to see how Jesus made disciples because, friends, this is what he's called us to do. So with, I wanted you to have utter clarity. The goal of discipleship is to bring people to the fullest of maturity in Christ and to mobilize them for ministry. You know, like in football, every once in a while, you see a situation where the quarterback drops back to pass, the receiver runs around, and the, the ball ends up being in a completely different area than where the receiver is. And you know what the announcer says on TV, right? Uh, it is obvious that The quarterback and the receiver were not on the same page, right? Obviously, it was a breakdown. And, of course, the quarterback's like, what are you doing? And the receiver's like, no. And it's clear that they they had their signals mixed mixed up. They didn't know what to do. God doesn't want that with his people. He wants utter clarity as to what we're to do. This is the Great Commission. So how did Jesus go and make disciples? You know, Jesus said, listen, you know, after you've been fully trained you're going to end up like your teacher. That's what he said like in Luke 6.40. And that's what Jesus had been doing with them. How do we go about making disciples? Well, what I want to do is I want to, just to try to make this as clear as possible, I want to give you the six characteristics of Jesus' strategy of making disciples, and I'm going to actually give you some just practical ways you and I can do the same. The first thing is is you've got to be connecting with people. And so as you're reading the New Testament, the Gospels, You might go, this is puzzling. It's like, here's Jesus, he's doing this or that. Next thing you know, he's preaching a sermon. Now we're doing a miracle. Now we're confronting the Pharisees. Like, it seems kind of random. That is until you understand that there is a clear pattern of what Jesus is doing. In the beginning of the Gospels, you see that Jesus is connecting with people. He's teaching in the synagogues. He's going to people's homes, like Simon's home. He apparently is cuffing them on fishing trips. So if you want a biblical justification for fishing, it's really good. You want to be like Jesus? Jesus seemed to spend time with fishermen. Who knows? Maybe even had some stellar catches. I don't know. Maybe he had the record at, on the Sea of Galilee. Don't know. But we do know that he was engaging with individuals in a wide variety of settings. In fact, his first year, he's teaching in synagogues, but he's also doing a lot of just engaging with individuals. You need to know that if you're going to make disciples of the nations, what Jesus has called you to do, you're actually going to have to talk to someone. You're going to have to have a friend. If you think that you're going to live your life in utter isolation, got news for you. It's going to be lonely and painful. You were made for relationships. Some of you are made for, I, I need at least a couple friends, and some of you need a couple thousand friends, but that's, that's just how it is. But if you're going to make disciples, you have to actually be in relationship with people. You have to engage them. And that means that you'll have to ask questions about their life. Show an interest. Just in normal, natural ways, whether it be at work or at school or at the gym or or wherever, at the church, in the foyer. We'll give you food at the cafe. We want you to engage. Because why? Because that's how you get to know people. And that's what Jesus did. He was making relationships. He was making connections. Now, in order to understand Jesus' strategy of making disciples, you have to understand a little bit about Jewish culture, specifically on how rabbis function. Now, does anybody know what the word rabbi means? Teacher. Wow, you have a lot of smart people in this service. This is great. That's right. A rabbi is a teacher. The Jewish teachers were referred to as rabbis. Let me tell you how they function. They would, uh, if most of them were itinerant, meaning they go from town to town to city, and they would speak in the local synagogue. The scriptures would be read, and they would give the interpretation. They'd give a sermon. They would talk about, how does this truth apply? And if people were blessed by their ministry, they liked these rabbis, what they would do is they would give finances to them, and that supported their way of life. Some of the rabbis actually stayed in Jerusalem, and they taught at the Temple Mount. And rabbis, some of them gained some, a lot of fame. They were well-known. They were highly respected. And their teaching ministry was very important. But it was not the most important aspect of their ministry. The most important aspect of a ministry of a rabbi was not their teaching ministry. It was their discipleship ministry. You see, every rabbi had a team, a group of students that traveled with them. And this was the most important part of their ministry. These were hand-picked students that the rabbi selected to invest in him. So uh, a student was called the Talmud, Uh, the group of students was called the Talmudim, and they were a group of students that lived with a rabbi. They learned everything they could. And and let me tell you how these relationships started. There were no schools and universities 2,000 years ago in Israel. If you wanted your son to have a high-quality education, you needed to get him linked up with a rabbi. And so what would happen is families would approach rabbis, and some of my research They would actually give money. Like, we'd like to make a sizable donation to your ministry, okay? If you take Junior here, needs a lot of work, All right, We haven't been able to fix him. We were hoping you might be able to help him out. So, if you wanted your kid to get a high education, quality education, you had to get him linked up with a rabbi. And so the rabbi would consider, okay, here's Junior here, and try to figure out like how teachable he is, what is the potential here. And this is the answer they were hoping to hear to the request? Can my son join you? They were waiting to hear these two words. Follow me. When a when a kid heard that, when the family heard that, all of a sudden they knew that they were going to drop whatever they were doing, and they were now going to be in an intense year, two year, maybe a little bit longer season of life where they were going to be completely united with this rabbi. They would travel with him. They'd do everything with him. The rabbi was going to pour his life into him, and that's what they were going to do. Very interesting. Jesus follows the pattern of a rabbi. You see, the second C in making disciples is calling individuals to himself. That's what Jesus did. So it's interesting. Jesus goes about it a little bit different. There is no record in Scripture of anyone asking Jesus, like, hey, I want you to pick me, follow me. No, he's the one that does the selection. Jesus is the one that says, follow me. So you see that. Um, like in Matthew chapter 4, beginning in verse 18, you see that Jesus is walking on the Sea of Galilee, and you see Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, and they're like, I'm the, they're fishermen, they're hanging out on the sea, they're trying to catch fish you remember Jesus walks up to them and he just says this, follow me and I, I will make you fishers of men. And you know what it says in the very next verse? They dropped and they immediately left their nets and they followed him. Or like when Jesus calls Matthew, the tax collector, and he says, follow me, he literally dropped everything, Matthew does. And he begins following Jesus. Why? Because they understood that Jesus was inviting them to an intense year, two, maybe longer period of time where he was going to pour his life into them. It was almost as if it was like a rabbinic contract. Although it didn't exist, it wasn't signed. They understood that if the rabbi said, follow me, it was like this golden opportunity to be invested in and poured into. And that's what we see. By the way, if you and I are going to make disciples like Jesus is calling... Not only do you have to connect with people, but you have to actually enter into a relationship with them. And so what you do is, uh, if you're like going like, okay, so how am I supposed to make disciples? If you are married and uh, you have kids, if God bless you with kids, they actually have your last name. That is a big clue. These are some of the ones you're to pour into. You want to help train. But really, you can go beyond that. I mean, just around this auditorium, there's all sorts of people that could be desperate to have someone encourage, pour in, invest in their life. And so what you do, you just kind of maybe invite someone to lunch, like a gal. You say, hey, why don't you pick one of these young gals and just invite her to your home and have lunch? I mean, it could be egg salad, whatever, you know, you can do it. And, but just invite, and you, what you do is you start entering into a relationship. Or a guy, you could just invite another guy out to lunch. And as you're talking, and you're looking for to make some connection, you're asking some good questions, you can say, hey, you know, would you like to, for just kind of season, maybe every other week, let's just kind of get together and let's just kind of talk about some matters of life, whether it be work or ministry or family, whatever, let's just kind of talk. Maybe you go through a book, like Master Plan of Evangelism, or Launching Multipliers. It's free, it's online, it's very good, 18 lessons. But you enter into a relationship, there's a calling, that's what Jesus did. Let me give you a third characteristic. If you're going to make disciples like Jesus, not only is there a connecting and there's a calling, but Jesus was communicating with them. You see that Jesus is always teaching and instructing. He's giving sermons, parables, principles, proverbs. He's asking them questions. Sometimes he answers the questions. Sometimes he does not. But that's what, that's what you did if you were a rabbi. You actually were communicating. And that's what Jesus does with his men. Uh, he asks them questions. He puts them in situations where he's quizzing them, trying to get more information. Um, a rabbi felt very comfortable not answering all their questions. Actually, how rabbis functioned uh, in their discipleship time—they would do this teaching time. The students would be all silent, and then they would ask the rabbi questions. Like, "Hey, you said this." Well, there was a rabbi that showed up in our village one time, and he kind of said this on the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. What? What do you think? And why do you see it this way? Because what a rabbi would do was teach them the scriptures. And so they would engage. But they didn't feel like, the rabbi didn't feel like he had to answer all their questions. And this is exactly what you see Jesus doing. So like in Mark chapter 4, verses 30 and 33 and following, he says, With many parables, which are stories, he was speaking the word to them, so far as they were able to hear it. And he did not speak to them without a parable, but he was explaining everything privately to his own disciples. Let me help you understand what's taking place. That's what he's doing there. It was a deliberate strategy. Very interesting. When you look at Jesus' three-year public ministry, the first year, uh, he's just kind of connecting. Then he starts calling these various ones, 12, to be with him. And years two and three, his public ministry gets less and less, and his private, personal ministry with his disciples becomes more and more It was the deliberate strategy of just working with these guys. And at times, it seems like they're getting it. And at other times, not so much. So what do you and I do if we're going to make disciples? Well, we communicate with people. We talk to them. You've got to ask some good questions. If you don't even have a good question, let me give you some. Like, hey, what are you excited about? What are you thankful for? What is causing you um, to be a little fearful right now? What is something that you don't understand? What is... Of the big obstacles you think right now that you're facing, and you just start engaging and talking. If you're in a ministry, like you're a small group leader, or you're working with our kids, or college kids, or whatever, guess what? There's all these opportunities to ask these kind of questions. And and you just talk about life one's personal life, how they're doing with God, can they read their Bible, uh, how's their prayer life going. You can talk about their relationships, if they're married, they're divorced, they're single, what's going on at home, what's going on with the kids, the grandkids. Uh, you can talk about their career, what's going on at work, how do you see your job, where you going. You talk about their ministry. Like, being involved in ministry spurs so many questions. Because, like, how do you do this, and what do you do? Well, you talk about those things, and that's what you see Jesus doing. And, you know, because a few people ask questions, just tell them what you know. That's what I do. There's times where I'm like... These people should be asking questions, but they're not. I'm going to just tell them, hey, let me give you some thoughts that I've had or or some, you know, I've been in a situation like this, and you just tell them what you know. So that's what Jesus does. Let me give you the fourth C on how Jesus made disciples, his strategy. There was the connecting. There was the calling. There's communicating. There is the fourth C that is the coaching, that you are actually trying to train and develop them. You're bringing skills to bear in their life. Discipleship really is a lot like parenting, okay? You're always talking and engaging, you're showing, you're correcting, you're, you're engaging. You want to see them brought to the fullness of maturity. It's kind of like, remember that uh, definition of discipleship? It is an intentional, right, relationship. It's intentional, relational process of bringing people to the maturing in Christ. You want them to see them fully mature, and you want them mobilized for ministry. Well, that's what you're doing. You're coaching them hey, this is how you work through this, or here's some things that are going to be helpful. And that's what you see Jesus doing. When they first started hanging out with Jesus, it was like, we're with Jesus. Jesus would be doing the teaching, he'd do the miracles, and it was really cool. And then all of a sudden he said, this has been great, guys, but guess what? It's time for you now to go. It's time for you to actually do some things. So you see this, like in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 10, verse 5, These 12, then Jesus sent them out after instructing them. Listen, he says, I'm sending you out now. Do not go to the way of the Gentiles and do not enter any city of the Samaritans. Listen, I'm going to narrow it down. I want you to go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And he says, and as you go, I want you to preach saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This is what I want you to do. And so they did. And then he came back and they talked about their successes and their failures. And Jesus coached them. And that's what you see Jesus doing. He's coaching them, training them. But perhaps the most profound way of really coaching an individual is modeling truth for them. To give them a living picture of what it means to do as you're trying to teach and coach them. I'll tell you this. uh, No one has learned to be a good leader unless they've learned how to be a good follower. And spiritual growth comes best... By close contact with a holy example. Not that you're perfect. In Jesus' case, he is perfect. But really, holiness comes best when you've got close contact with a holy example. Modeling maturity. And so that's what Jesus did. They would see Jesus interact. In fact, Jesus makes this statement in John 14, verse 6. He says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. You see, a rabbi was thought to embody the scriptures. If you want to know what does it look like for the scriptures to be alive, you look at the rabbi, when Jesus says, I'm it. I'm the way, I'm the truth, and the life, guess what? He's saying, I embody the truth. If you want to know what truth looks like, I'm it. Follow me. And so this is what Jesus is doing. He's modeling, he's coaching. Uh, remember, like in Luke 11, verse 1, it was Jesus' pattern. He was out in the place praying, and when he had finished... His disciples came up to him and said this. Hey, Lord, would you teach us to pray like John taught his disciples to pray? Would you teach us how to do that? Because John taught his disciples how to pray. Prayer is obviously really important to you. It's not so important to us. We're missing it. Would you teach us? And so he does. He actually gives them. Here's a pattern. Here's how to pray. This is why it's important. And so that's what you do. You're coaching individuals. You're giving them a vision of what truth looks like in their life. Not that you're perfect. That's why we need a Savior. But you're moving in a direction. It's not perfection so much. It is as direction. And let me just tell you kind of what this looks like. It's like CPR. You you cultivate the soil. You spur an interest. You engage. Then you P, plant the seed. Plant the seed of truth. And R, then you see reaping. You see what God does with his truth. Here's something else that... Um, Rabbis did, part of their coaching ministry and strategy, was to give lots of examinations, quizzes, tests. So if you're in school right now and you're like, why do my teachers dream of all these quizzes and exams? I want you to know this has been around for a long time. Jesus did it with his disciples. The rabbi was not afraid to send out his, his gang, his students, even if he knew they would fail. He wasn't afraid of failure. He wanted them to learn. In fact, he would put them in situations where they would be desperate for truth. And you see Jesus offering all sorts of examinations in just the same way. So, for instance, remember uh, during a storm, uh, Jesus is asleep at the boat. He knows they're going to get the other side because he actually said we're going to the other side. But the disciples forgot about that because their storm came up and they were panicking like, ah, we're going to die out here. Jesus is asleep. They decide to wake him up. You know what was going on there, don't you? It was an examination. Because Jesus had just one question. He said, hey, listen, guys. Where's your faith? I said, we're going to the other side. I'm here with you. I'm in the boat. I'm not stressed out. You are. Where's your faith? It was an examination. It's all part of a coaching strategy. Remember uh, that time when there were 5,000 men, not counting women and children? And they'd been listening to Jesus' teaching, and they were... And all, everybody was getting really hungry. The disciples were getting super hungry. They brought up, hey, the people are getting hungry, i.e., we're starving. And uh, Jesus said, good, why don't you go feed them? I'm like, wait a second. We, we don't have the resources. We stole the little boys' lunch. But that's not going to feed everybody. And you remember what Jesus did? He performed the miracle, and he gave them the food, and they gave the food that they got from Jesus to the people. What Jesus was doing is teaching them this is what ministry is going to be like. You and of yourselves totally inadequate but I will give you what you need to do as I have asked. It was all part of a coaching strategy. Remember that one occasion Matthew chapter 19 very interesting scenario where apparently children were trying to come up to Jesus and the, uh, the disciples were like pushing them away and I don't know throwing rocks at them making evil faces whatever. They were trying to scare the children to keep them from coming to Jesus and Jesus said hey Let's take a little time out here. And he said this. He said, you know, listen, I happen to like little children. I happen to like these kids. And he said, let the children alone and do not hinder them from coming to me. Why? For the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. This is all coaching. Jesus was telling, listen, like Luke 6, verse 47. Everyone who comes to me and hears my word and acts on them. I will show you whom he's like. This is a person building their life on me. It's coaching. That's what he's doing. Now, what, what a rabbi was after and what Jesus is after is spiritual transformation that you are truly changed by, your presence, by his presence with you and you knowing him and following him. To be a disciple of Jesus, you are not required to be smart, but you must be loyal. You don't have to be highly intelligent, you don't have to have a bunch of degrees, you don't have to go to seminary, you don't have to do those things. But you do have to be loyal, that you can be trusted. And so we see Jesus training them through their failures. Remember one time they they couldn't cast out a demon? And Jesus said, you know, that's because this kind of demon doesn't come out except through prayer and fasting. He wasn't afraid of their failures, but he was always coaching and he was always teaching. That's what you do in disciple making you coach. So you start off with like foundational needs. Like, what do they really know about the gospel? Do they are they really trusting in Christ? Can they read their Bible? Can they have a quiet time? Do they know how to pray? Do they have some foundational understanding about the key doctrines of the Bible? Do they know how to assess the condition of their soul? Do, do they know the basics of walking with God? Do they understand a little bit about what it means to follow Jesus? Those are foundational needs. But the other thing that you coach people on are the felt needs. You will find that in any discipleship relationship or any significant relationship, the felt needs of the individual, the pain in their relationship, the problems they're having at work, uh, issues with their spouse or their kids or the grandkids or work issues or things that are in ministry, they lend themselves to education, investment, talking about praying with friends. That's a big part of ministry. If you're going to see people come to the fullness of maturity in Christ and being mobilized for ministry, there's going to have to be some coaching. And that's exactly what Jesus is doing. If you want some good material, there's a launching multipliers. I mentioned that, master plan on evangelism. Find an article, find a book, take a book in the Bible, take 2 Timothy, hey, let's just talk about the first half of this chapter. All of this is meant to coach, to encourage, to be a part of that. Well, this is Jesus' strategy. I've given you four C's, but this fifth C in Jesus' intentional strategy of making disciples, if you don't have it, you will not be involved in a disciple-making ministry that will be effective. This is so essential and critical that if you don't have it, your whole ability to be of strong spiritual influence is going to be severely hampered. The fifth C is caring. Jesus cared for his people. It's very interesting, like the Gospel of John. John doesn't refer to himself by name. Do you know how he refers to himself? As the disciple whom Jesus loved. And that's all that he needed to know. And that's what he says. You don't need to know my name. All you need to know is that I'm the disciple that Jesus loved. I think they all felt that way. That is the essence of a strategy. Connect at the heart. Love the people. In uh, John 11.35, the shortest verse in the English Bible. Jesus wept. If you need a memory verse for you for the week, there it is. Jesus wept. You got it. And theologians try to figure out, why, why is Jesus weeping? Why did he cry? Why was he so upset? I mean, he knew that he was going to actually call Lazarus back to life. He's standing in front of the tomb. Why is he weeping? When it all gets said and done, the reason that Jesus wept is because Jesus cared. He loves his people. He's obviously angered by sin and the death that sin brings, but that anger itself is sourced in a love, a deep, profound, divine love. Jesus wept because he cared. There's an amazing summary statement of Jesus' ministry. It's found in John 13.1. There's this huge transition. And it says this, Now, before the feast of the Passover, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, that he would depart out of this world to the Father, listen to this. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Literally, he loved them fully, to the uttermost. He loved them completely. You see, every time they saw Jesus, they saw love lived out. You know, right after this statement made about Jesus and his love, you know what he does in John 13, don't you? He washes their feet. They saw love where Jesus was teaching. They saw love when Jesus was bringing about healing, when he was caring, when he's sympathizing. They saw love being demonstrated all the time. When, when they saw Jesus just pour out his life and teaching and engaging people to bringing him place where he was absolutely exhausted, what they saw was love personified. And when they saw the cross, that's what they saw: Love poured out at the cross. When you saw Jesus taking this beating. And he going to a cross and being nailed, paying the penalty for our sins. Friends, I want you to know that was highly intentional on Jesus' part. It was to demonstrate his love. It, his love drove him there. He at any time could have said, game over, we're not doing this. But no, 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 no. I love my people. You got any question, does, does God really love me? You just look at the cross. Just look at the cross. And so, friends, if you're going to have any spiritual influence on anyone, starting with your kids, anybody in this church, anybody in this community, you have to learn how to love. If you want to understand how what this looks like, I'll try to make it real easy. If you're a guy and you want to communicate love to a guy, let me tell you one word, respect. That's how you show that you care. The minute you disrespect another male, you got yourself an enemy. But... You can look the guy in the eye. You can shake their hand. You listen when they're talking. You don't blow them off, roll their eyes, ignore them. No, you engage. Respect. That's how you show you care. And for gals, one word love. When a gal knows that she is unconditionally loved, she has a tendency just to open up and flourish. That doesn't necessarily mean that uh, you gals are engaging these other ladies that you approve of all the things that they're doing but that they know you've got their best interest at heart. You agape love them. You care for them. Which means that you have to learn how to connect at a heart level. It requires death, but Jesus said, you know what? I can give it to you. You see, if if they know that you love them, you can lead them. If they know that you love them, you can lead them. And that leads us then to the final C. The final C is that Jesus commissioned them. All discipleship relationships with a rabbi all had a time where that season, whether it be one year, two year, maybe a little longer, it would come to a formal end. They would always be friends, and I'm sure from time to time they'd get together, but uh, they understood now, I'm commissioned to do what has been done with me. And they went. And so you see that. Jesus said in like John 15, verse 15, he said this, No longer do I call you slaves, for the slave does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends for all things that, you have, that I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. We're friends. Everything that I've heard from the Father I've passed on to you. Now you go and do the same. And friends, that's what the Great Commission is. Matthew 28, 18-20. I want you to go and make disciples of all the nations. What does that look like? It's exactly what I've done with you, and friends, this was the practice of the early church. This is why, when Paul says Second Timothy two two, he says, "The things that you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, these entrust the faithful men who will be able to teach others also." It is the four generations in that verse. It is a continuation of the pattern that Jesus said, "This is what I want you to do." Friends, discipleship is far more organic than it is organizational, and God never calls us to do something He's never equips us or empowers us to do, that's why Jesus said, listen, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. I want you to know in my own life, uh, I've been involved in a disciple-making ministry for many years now. Started in college. It's highly rewarding, sometimes pretty challenging. But friends, it is what Jesus has called us to do. It is no small thing. For any investment you make in his name. I just question here before we finish up. How many of you have had a parent or Sunday school teacher or friend, co-worker, someone on your athletic team, pastor, make a, a discipleship investment in you? I'd just be curious in a church like this. Okay, a fair number of you. I want to ask you then this question. Are you willing to go and make disciples? People are God's ordinary means to accomplish his extraordinary mission. And Jesus says, listen, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. This is what I want you to do. I want you to go. And I want you to make disciples of all the nations. And listen, I'm going to be with you. You trust me. I'll do my work for you. Let's pray. Lord, we open up Matthew chapter 28. this is such holy ground, for this is the play that you've called us to do. We're going to break this huddle, and we're going to go out through those doors. Lord, help us to see ourselves involved in your mission, in our homes, in this church, in this community, in this world. And for someone who has come here today has never trusted in Christ, but they just say, Lord, today I get it, and I'm trusting in Jesus as the payment for my sins. And Lord, for all of us, may this great commission be the great reality. Would you will it and make it so? We ask for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.